namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa uddang dhammang sankhang namasami so it's um, worthwhile if you're looking at some of these texts and things, uh, teachings that are handed down from the Buddha in the early discourses because it's particularly the language that's used is quite um, specific and there's a particular tone to it particular overall impression you know, that comes from it both in, its, both in what is said and also the way it's said a lot of it's very striking images and the images, um, as you get some of these images, they really stay in your mind. And they're, they're very helpful, very kind of powerful images. And I think the Buddha was a very powerful speaker. He used a lot of uh, images that would actually stay with people because I guess in those days, you know, the chances are that you might only see somebody once. You know, he's wandering around, people are wandering around, you might only see him once or twice. So when you said something, you want to make sure it really, really stayed. <laughs> so there's something very uh, uh, very urgent and sometimes quite intense about the, the Buddha's uh, language because he's like someone who's really wanted to um, leave an impression that would counteract the confused impressions that we often are prone to or derive from our environment. And, um, you know, the aim being that really to to get us out of of suffering, pain, stress, loss, fear, um, reactivity, violence, anger, despair, depression, you know, kind of stuff that we find ourselves caught up with, whether we, either from other people or the world around us, you know, it's also in our own minds. can see literally the world would often use the image of fire mm. burning all these kind of bombings and shootouts in Mumbai uh, you know are not that really unusual the kind of violence that, that's going on in the world So often, even when we talk about uh, the, the, you know, what is awakening or enlightenment or something like this, so some of you use a word like awakening, which is a pretty useful way of looking at it. But you can take it wasn't you see, awakening. You get the sense of life is like it's a dream, and you wake up, and then you so there's something kind of fairly uh, peaceful about that, you know, like you'd. After a while you wake up, you know, you wake, you're sleepy, and then you wake up. It happens by itself. But the Buddha definitely said it doesn't happen by itself. Um, it's, 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 once he's, Ananda asked him, is it, is it the fact that everybody inevitably gets enlightened? He said, no, no, it's dependent upon their ability to practice. You have to actually engage. You know, you can't just kind of wait for the dream to end. Um, and even more so, the kind of images he would use were uh, more to do with fire and uh, putting out a fire, coming out of a fire, 
or taking away the basis of a fire. Um, a lot of the language was like that. It was not anything as kind of gentle and, and easy as just waking up. It really meant putting out a fire uh, or not feeding a fire or uh, uh, you know, removing the basis for a fire. So that, that, that was often the images that the Buddha used were of that nature, pretty intense images. And um, the very <clears throat> kind of a view that he had was that in a way we are like candles almost. Uh, you know, that we, we are born, we have this finite physical form, and we're just lit with a life force. And it gradually we just burn up slowly over you know, 70, 80 years, we just kind of, our energy just dissipates and with this physical thing wears down. And, uh, but then the, the, that, the quality of that flame is then transferred, you know, and we do it, it happens again. And it just goes on like that, burning up life after life. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the, 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 uh, this catching hold of the fire is called upadana. Or clinging was was the was the term that was ref, was used to to refer to how fire takes hold of something. Like fire is said to cling to wood or to paper or to you know, straw. It, so this upadana means actually feeding on. The fire feeds on or clings to. You know, it's not. Uh, you know, it's not hardly even a conscious action, it's a reflex. If you if the the elements are there and there's a certain sparking, the fire's gonna happen. And it gives one an impression both of the of the corrosive nature of clinging. Uh, it's actually feeding, burning you up, and the 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 sense that it's conditioned. You have to have dry wood, you have to have a spark, you have to have enough oxygen around. If those are if those aren't there, then the, the fire isn't going to happen. So it both points to the conditioned nature of how this clinging takes place, and also to the fact that it can be it can be extinguished. If the wood's wet, if there's no spark, if there's no oxygen, there's no fire. Yeah. And so this kind of uh, you can reflect on things like that. Um, that it it's it's a very uh, it's a strong reflex to cling to to get this reactive um, sparking, flashing occurring in one's mind, in one's senses, in one's nervous system, uh, and to and that to have this kind of burning glow to it, and uh, sometimes passion, you know, fierce glow, or sometimes a quite pleasant glow, but uh, um, that. It's something that happens as a reflex, but also that even though it seems to be just a reflex, it's supported by particular conditions, and that those conditions be, can be removed. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, often uses the word food, food for food, uh, fire, feeds. It needs things to feed on, and you'd use this image also. Um, like what is food for the hindrances? What feeds the hindrances is is unskillful attention. That is, if you keep pondering and bringing your mind into things that uh, cause craving or hatred or um, 
you know, restlessness to, to, to flare up. You keep, you keep turning your attention to things that, that draw up greed, you know, like you know, shopping list catalogs, things we could fancy. In fact, these, you know, things that are being placed in front of our eyes all the time. You keep sticking your mind into that. Then this is food for the hindrances or, um, you know, um, thinking of people's, uh, um, unpleasant characteristics, you know, things where one feels fear or dislike or, or just antipathy, then if you keep bringing your mind into that, that's going to feed ill will. You, know, you don't have to see things like that. You can consider people with a light of something like compassion or recognizing people have karma. Um, that, so we are recognizing where we're coming from also. We've got fault finding mind. So, there is this sense of that even these, these, if you don't feed it, the fire will go out. Mm. But it does mean not, not just kind of witnessing, but actually recognizing, considering, having some intelligence, say, and making a choice. Just, you know, choice to shift or to relax or to turn your attention somewhere else or to deliberately put something aside, consider something else. And this is the kind of basic um, practice, you might say, recollection, wise recollection, where you, you start to choose what you're going to occupy your attention with, hmm? what you're actually going to bring into your mind, knowing that everything you bring into your mind is going to have some kind of effect. Yeah. Do you make some choice over what you bring into your mind? If you don't make some choice over what you bring into mind, then um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that what's going to happen is just the, the random input is going to be that which is based upon um, you know, further becoming, upon um, sensuality, upon just whatever the media want to put in there. And most of it's not about waking up or enlightenment or cessation of suffering it's about other things so making choices you know what one attends to but I think it's very important you know this kind of, without having this basic level it's very difficult to get much further particularly if you're not in living in a monastery you know, even in a monastery you can put your attention to all kinds of things that keep stirring you up um, but in lay life, it's almost really paramount importance because the floodgates are so open, you know, television, radio, media, and so on. So is it possible to put some of this stuff aside to not attend, you know? And uh, with all that, the kind of hooks that, that say, well, you know, you're missing out or you're not in touch or you're not keeping up with <laughs> those kinds of... Uh, Things that go along with this, uh, you know, keep keeping the mind open to everything. Mm-hmm. Choose making a choice, and then maybe bring your attention to things that that generate steadiness, calm, um, reflection, wisdom, compassion. Bringing your attention to that, you know, so making a choice, um, so that we put out, we don't heap up these fires of agitation. Um, instead we start to you know bring ourselves out of that
This is manasikara, yoniso manasikara, wise or, or skillful attention. It starts off with just recognizing what is helpful, you know, and what is not helpful, what is um, skillful, and that is morally skillful, say, and what's unskillful, and then actually what is more like giving you suffering and stress and what is removing it. So it, dis- it discriminates like that. It's not a passive attention. It's actually engaged and, re- and intelligent. Another way that the Buddha used this image of, of food and feeding um, was, um, you know, he said that you can look, and look at, you can look at your what comes into you as four kinds of food. There's the food of material food, and we might even stretch that to mean also just sensory input, but basically material food, stuff that's there that you can take in, and then <coughs> um, contact. We feed upon contact. We feed upon that kind of resonance, that sort of... that. Um, Taking something in and and pondering it, or or uh, dwelling upon it, or celebrating or enjoying it, you know, it's a contact impression. Um, and then um, mental volition. Uh, we also, in general, you know, people like to be filled with doing things, like to be busy. Mm-hmm. Certain push, mental volition. We get bored, we get restless, we feel inadequate, we're doing something. So we feed upon that. It makes us feel we're getting along, we're doing something useful, we're helpful, we're important, life is interesting. So this is another kind of food. And the last kind of food is consciousness, which means that we're continually taking in visual objects, sights, sounds, and uh, Thoughts, tact, sensations, you know, sense of oh, here I am, and it gives it gives rise to this sense of here I am, mm. um, and this is rather subtle actually, the last kind, but if you if you practice with it, you see that they have a certain successive nature to them. That is, as you start to consider, just bear in mind material food, what do you physically need. Uh, and how much of it is just um, a habit? Uh, how much of it is just um, some? It's just oral, oral gratification, like something to do. That funny, bored, empty, uncertain feeling. Pop something in the mouth, you know, sweetie, chocolate, Mars bar, cigarette. Whatever it is, you know, something in that in that in that hole. <laughs> uh, so this is the kind of thing that we we do, not necessarily for because we physically need it, but because it's something to to have some contact with. You know, we get that inner sense of oh, yeah, it was nice, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's good, all right, you know, and something's happening. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of, uh, you get quite a lot of these um, eating disorders over people. It's nothing to do with a physical need for food. You get bulimia and anorexia, and much more. You see how they're related to psychological 
needs or psychological disorders and how food the way we handle and relate to food is really an indication of psychological not just physical but psychological um, balance or need or fear you know don't want to eat anything there's a certain fear of, of being vulnerable or whatever it is or the binging you know, or obsessing about particular foods. It's not looking for for nourishment. It's a it's a something to do with the psychological qualities. Yeah. And part of this is to do with contact, warmed, you know, filled, uh, you know, or fear of being filled. So, and the image of the Buddha used, which is very sort of image you don't forget about food. He said, imagine, you know, there's a couple that have to cross a desert and they take their little son with them across in this desert and they're going on and on and on, the days are going on and their food has run out and they realise they've got another week to go to get across this desert. So they decide they'll kill their son and eat him so they've got enough to get across the desert. He said, that's how you should consider food. I mean, he didn't do it because it tasted nice. You just really ate it because you actually really needed to get across the desert. Yeah. Sort of image you don't forget in a hurry. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, you could take, take offense at that. Um, but... Uh, you know, somebody's telling me today about uh, you know, eating and saying this kind of, uh, yeah, I think it's in China, you know, that they get a horse, drive the horse into a big brick oven the horse could stand up in and then heat the oven up so it's very, very hot. So the horse was absolutely parched and let, let the horse out and they'd have a trough in front which was full of kind of pickled liquid which the horse normally wouldn't eat but it was so thirsty it would drink this liquid and this liquid is a kind of pickling to take the liquid into the body and then they drive the horse back into the oven meaning that the pickle had got into the flesh and then so it was pickling itself and then they heat the oven up and burn and cook the horse alive with pickled flesh, you know. Um, yeah, right. You know, heard of, ever heard of people eating monkey brains, live monkeys? Um, you know, look at the beef industry: cow, sheep, slaughter. You know, you've been to a, ever been to a battery chicken farm? You know, you go to one of those, you really don't want to eat very much. Uh, but of course we don't see it we just see nice little cling film wrapped pork chops and things of this nature just and how much food is just thrown away you know business lunch you have a nibble here and you want to chuck the rest away isn't it uh, quite unskillful mm-hmm. we need powerful reminder mm-hmm. Just what's really necessary. Mm.
and then how much of it is just psychological needs, something different, some different flavour, you know, lion's paws or something has to be eaten. Didn't want to be eaten. Um, So, you know, just kind of considering that and then you look at the, the inner qualities of the of the um, the need to be filled, the need to have something to engage with. That's contact. That's the that's the fire of contact. Yeah. So as you start to consider uh, gross forms of input, such as food, drink, whatever, then you start to look at why why you know what is it other than just real need, physical need that is driving. Why do I read so much? Why do I listen to so much music, sound, books, this, that, this, that, pictures? You know, I've seen a thousand of them. I come, you know, the incessant need for more, contact, talk, you know, touch, sound, this, that, this, that, this, that. There's a there's something uh, <coughs> fiery. There's a fire there. There's a real, you know, um, passion there. Mm. If we got cut off, we feel really quite, uh, you know, bored, restless, confused, uncertain. So that keeps us hooked up to kinds of input. You know? The need for contact, need to just be stirred, and this really is what you start to um, work with when you practice meditation, because you you start you know you're limiting it. You close the eyes, and then you feel the mind just kind of bursts loose, you're running around, just trying to think something, remember something, plan something, stir something up, you know. Uh, just wants something to play with, the mad monkey. So, you know, uh, my first year of meditation, I don't think I actually got music out of my head for over a year. Every time I closed my eyes, the music would start playing. It was so loud, I sort of look around thinking it was actually coming from outside because it was so loud. <laughs> it was just, just all the coming in my own nervous system, the music, the sound, you know, it was like the, the system just needed some contact, so it started producing its own contact impressions, you know, and uh, it was actually much better, much more poignant, much more uh, perfect sound than when I listened to it in the first place. You know, the remembered sound was much more full of uh, meaning, you know, and you could just play it endlessly. In fact, I couldn't stop it. It took over a year the sound of the music in my head to stop you know, just to get a break from it and it would drive me nuts you know? and it was like this is what this is the result of having listened to music non-stop for five years <laughs> do you really want any more of it you know? oh, yeah. uh, the silence is kind of nice you know, there's a deepening quality to it 
because it was that the when she when she starts to meditate, then you get a sense of how softer, how when there's less contact, it's not that you you go dead and bored. You actually become more sensitive. Your mind becomes more subtle, spacious, and uh, and um, less agitated. So the fire of contact, when that declines, you get this lovely sense of cool, open space, which, uh, you know, for me, just came in tiny little little fits and spurts. Because after the music stopped, then it was the, uh, the uh, planning. Planning this, that, this, that, and... and uh, Mm. came to England it was building I used to build when I meditate I used to build things in my meditation I'm not, I'm not actually any good at building things I've never built anything I'm useless at building things I don't even hardly come up one end of a hammer from another in my meditation I construct the most exquisite buildings <laughs> cathedrals shrines staircases chandeliers <laughs> You know, what's this about building? You know, it's something that kind of mind that can just, you know, just this raw energy to to produce stuff. That took about five years to <laughs> put that one down. You know, just feeling the pain of it, the pain of it, the um, of this continuous sort of pushing, driving thing. And the Buddha said, contact is rather like a either cow. And you pull the skin off the cow, and the flayed cow, and the flies start biting the the the, the tender skin of the cow. He said, "This is what contact's like." <laughs> Another image you don't forget. You know, how much do you want? And actually, it sounds kind of a bit brutal, but when you meditate, actually, after a while, it starts to feel like you get the feeling of this, like a rash of mental impingement and um, you know, I just oh. and how to come out of that without uh, you know and I found just just finding you know letting them uh, bringing the mind into a softer kind of contact you know the breath and then there's two kinds of contact one is the actual impingement and the other is what your mind makes of it so as in the first case, you know, the, the contact was music, was actually impingement, or remembered impingement. The second one is contact was what my mind was making up. So just practicing much more, really feeling something like a breath, actually as it is, and not making anything out of it. Letting it so letting that, the resonances just pass. You know, the resonances pass without making anything out of it. So the sort of itchiness and the, and the twitchiness and the, the uh, tail wake, wagging of the cow, you know, and the restlessness. Oh, you know, finally, the sense of contact, the fire of contact, cooling, dying down. You know. Third kind of food, volition, he said, this is rather like, you can imagine a little spindly guy, a little weak guy, 
and he's being dragged by two big hefty fellows towards a blazing pit of charcoal <laughs> struggling to get away and so this is like this is what your this is mental volition this is the push of your mind you know and um, we and you know I don't know how many times one finds this oneself and you start off thinking oh I think I'll do that and you, you feel you're in the driver's seat and after all it's driving you you know it's rather like you, know, you, you start pulling a cart uphill and you get to the top of the hill you down the other side the cart is pushing you <laughs> yeah so you know when I was teaching in London recently just you see people run over by the, their carts you know the stuff they've been going for in the daytime and they're just actually kind of completely worn out with the do 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 you know which starts off as something you choose to do or you want to do or you feel you have to do and eventually it's doing you you know you run it you're pushed along and run over by by these uh, do it do it do it reflexes and of course uh, you know for many people we can say well that's you know way one has to live but if you look at the other you know basis like how much do you really need and then how much do you have this psychological wish for something to be filled with then if, if those two cool down then the third kind of food you need less of because you actually rather enjoy the you feel quite fulfilled by being more sensitive and spacious you feel quite fulfilled by that fulfilled by the subtle energy of of a of a peaceful cool mind when the fires go out and then there isn't that same sort of need to keep doing things to keep happy you know, or interested or alive or fulfilled and I think for everyone it's really it's a, a powerful twitch we have around doing things mm. you know something happens you want to do something um, we can feel if we can't do something we can feel frustrated or trapped even like you know um closed down or repressed so I find myself with this volitional twitch it's got to do something uh, something happens I've got to do something uh, if nothing's happening I should do something make it work if I'm uh, meditating I should do meditation and then I have I done enough meditation and then when I'm meditating I think well I've been meditating here for several hours I should do something more useful and then when I go out and do something more useful, I can think, you know, just getting caught up with doing things, I should meditate more, you know. So then I do meditation, then I do other things. And I, you know, I thought, I'm just, wait a minute, I'm just changing the, the script, but it's sort of the same kind of basic, basically basic psychology. Uh, what's it like to, to just slow down, you know? And for me, one of the things I do is just try widening. You know, it's like when you, you know, when, when your mind is quite t- 
tight or, or edgy, you get a lot more reactive. So, for example, you go to a, a, a doctor's or a dentist or something, they give, give you an injection, and you get very tense and nervous about it, then the, the feeling of that injection feels a lot more intense than if you're very relaxed. Yeah? And the relaxation is a certain, I call it like a widening of the mind. You feel more wide and spacious. And so the things that touch you don't have the same, quite the same contact impression. You don't get the immediate do something about it. You know, so the more kind of relaxed and grounded you are, the, the broader your, your mental um, focus is, then it's rather like you take away some of the, your, the, the wood or you make the wood damper so it doesn't catch fire so quickly. And you know you can feel these kind of impressions come and you get a beginning of a do something. You just, well, just wait on that. Just let it go. Wait on that. Mm-hmm. One meditation as a, as a practice in itself is just spending you know, 15 or 20 minutes just letting everything be exactly the way it is. You sit, feel your body, breathe in, breathe out, just come into presence and let everything be the way it is. You know. Well, yeah, right, but what am I supposed to, you know, okay, let that one be there. What am I supposed to, well, but what am I supposed to be doing? Good, let that one be there. Oh. Right, I've done that, so now what? Okay, let that one be there too. Hmm. How long have we been doing this for? Fine, let that one be there too. Let all those little twitches <laughs> whereby we keep coming back and kind of holding ourselves and touching ourselves as to where what am I, where am I, who am I, what am I, what am I supposed to be, what's going on? Give me some bearings. All those little you know, twitches. Let them all be there. And uh, you don't fight with them, don't have an opinion about them. And gradually, the energy shifts from the doing to that which sort of bears with or witnesses or is present with the doing. It's like there's a shift, but it happens by itself. You don't kind of wrench yourself out. It's just something you starts to, it's like your, your center of gravity starts to drop away from this rather more... End, end, end of your nerves feeling to something more deeply inner and uh, the twitches start to die down you, feel you don't actually need to know who you are and what you're supposed to be and where you're going hmm? oh. oh and that kind of urge fire and this is related to the, the the fourth kind of food, which is that which you know, which keeps bringing things in to my consciousness. And consciousness, in this sense, is not a state, but an action. Mm. 
So the way that the Buddha most often talked of consciousness was of an action of something that sparks when there's a sense base and a sense object. Something brings that object into the sense base. It brings a sight in. It brings a sound in. It brings a thought in. It brings a feeling in. Something flashes. Said so that's contact. That's consciousness. Yeah. When there's contact, sense base, sense object, flash, consciousness. And consciousness is an action. Consciousness of a particular thing. So it's, and it's rather like, um, you know, if you ha- if you have uh, tracer bullets, you know, where you get little lines of light, but they're going so fast that it it, it links up into a solid line of light or a dripping tap. Where at a certain point the tap drips, dripping so quickly it comes into a continual stream. He said consciousness is just is just this, this kind of continual, very fast activity. Um, and the image you use for consciousness, the food of consciousness, he says, you know, just imagine, um, I think it was spears, either spears or arrows, <laughs> something. Boom, boom, boom. You know, going into you. He said, just being. So he said, this is consciousness. Obviously, he was making a point there. You know, he didn't see it as something necessarily that beneficial. <laughs> yeah, because everything that comes in, there's some kind of oh, feeling arises. Do something about it. You know, duck, hold it, grab it, remember it. Uh, compare it with something else, uh, do something about it. So just this continual, you know, being penetrated, um, yeah, which only becomes apparent when when your mind settles enough to really sense, you know, what it's like. Oh, maybe sometimes when you're kind of sitting in meditation, and it's getting very very quiet, peaceful, and then the bell rings. And that's something. But then when you open your eyes, boom, you know, suddenly, and there's a feeling of, you know, something's jumped in. So that's why when we meditate, generally really recommend to come out very, very consciously, very slowly, steadily, so you actually feel, you know, as the eyes are closed, and then you just sense of just, Opening the eyes, just like you're drawing the curtains from a window and letting the objects come in. Before something jumps out and starts forming everything, you know, before you you can actually feel your visual consciousness rush out and start shaping everything up. You know, if you just open your eyes in a very relaxed way, there's just the uniform field with these different shades and colours and dark and light and then you know something jumps up and tightens it all up into you know there's Bob and Jill and Fred and there's the telly and there's the budgie and there's the view and it kind of becomes discrete objects and every one of those can then you can focus on and focus on make something out of it so the whole thing starts running from this being penetrated um, by, by visual objects and 
obviously, you know, you get a thought comes into your mind when you're meditating. You know, if you get to a place where there aren't any thoughts, or the thoughts have quietened down, and then suddenly a big thought comes jumping in, you know, it is like a rock in the po- in the pond. <laughs> and you think, well, you know, it was nice without that. Uh, so this um, action of consciousness, this consciousness, and you know, we get through that, and this is really um, quite subtle, by recognizing the nature of what comes in. You know how changeable it is, how reactive, how much karma we create around that, how evo- how stirring it is, how it pushes us. Um, you know, I don't really want to be, you know, reaching out for a lot of this and exploring both the impact, but then even more the case. Um, that consciousness gives rise to sense of self and other, subject and object. So seeing gives rise to someone who sees anything that's seen. These aren't ideas, these are felt experiences. You, know? you open your eyes and you, then you begin to, to get this sense of I'm here and you're there, you know. This is the me bit, that's the you bit. Yeah. And that's what consciousness does. It discriminates, it creates what's called nama rupa, or a, a knowing, which is the me bit, and a form, or a shape, which is the, the them, or the you bit. <laughs> yeah. So it always generates this sense of a self, a subject, and an object. Subject, object, subject, object. So it does that. You don't think it, you just automatically, that's what consciousness does. It's what it's supposed to do. I mean, it does it for chickens as well, I'm sure. You know, it's it's a handy thing to know, which is the me bit, and which is the you bit. (laughs) It's uh, for for birth and for incarnation, that's, that's, that's great. But it is just an inference. Yeah. And as you contemplate, as you watch it, you recognize that really, who, who is doing the seeing when, when something, when there is seeing? Who is the one who looks? Who is the one who hears? Who is the one who feels? Who's the one who's doing this? And, you know, you start to come through this sense of a permanent self, which is the um, what comes when we don't understand consciousness. Even when you get to sort of subtle states like being the witness or being the watcher. You know, so you come to the mind consciousness so you can get is kind of where you actually there's various thoughts and feelings and there I am watching it all, you know, witnessing. I am the witness, or I am the, the observer, or the one who knows, or something like that. It's the same thing. Sense of some subject is being created on a kind of immaterial plane, mm-hmm. 
And the, it really is the dependent result of consciousness. And if you start to slow the whole thing down or calm it down or cool it down, where you're not really uh, invested in sights or sounds, but you just want to, want to really understand what happens with them, it gives you a chance to contemplate or to, to witness or to get a sense of this forming of self out of it and how that is a <coughs> fiction. You know, there certainly is an eyeball, yeah, there's a nervous system, yeah, but this immaterial me thing, it's mirage-like, you know. It, it's dependently arisen. Doesn't, you know, it has some existence, but it's a dependently arisen existence. It's the result of consciousness, not something separate from consciousness, not something that is um, leading consciousness. It's de- it, it is generated by consciousness. So then all this, all the kind of inferences and the hungers and the uncertainties and the needs that are embedded in that very mirage-like impression. Oh, well, this is, this is fear, this is worry, this is, you know, this is this, this is this, this is this. You get a chance to, to clear through opening up what happens in consciousness and becoming more open about it, more dispassionate about it, more fully aware of it, and putting less and less into the fire. There's less and less investment in this self-image, this self-mirage. There's wishing to... um, put things into it to to apparently satiate its needs the more wood you put on a fire the fire does not say oh that's enough (laughs) you know the fire sort of starts to get a bit hungry and say well throw some wood in it you'll have enough it doesn't it just burns up more burns up more burns up more but then taking it out taking the wood out of the fire, can be that very funny, very uncomfortable feeling of, oh, I don't know where I am, what am I going to do, what's this like, how's this feel? Okay, so then, you know, just widening, breathing in, breathing out, softening, coming into presence, you know, giving it the time, and you start to to see that this uh, thing can be cooled, can be, you know, the passion for it the can be quelled. And of course, in our this is this is where there's the realization of release. You know? Of course in our daily life consciousness is a normal fact. It operates, it's supposed to do this. But then you get much more I think light about who you find yourself becoming, you know, the self that's arisen, because it is it's just it's just that, you know.
don't really want to keep doing it forever, that's for sure. (laughs) Mm. So I offer this for your reflection.